All right, quickly, uh, we're going to read the text in Exodus 15. So if you have your Bibles or devices, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Exodus 15, we're going to read the last little bit of that chapter, starting in verse 22. It says this, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. All right, one uh, quick side note. The, the wording here is interesting. It says Moses made Israel begin to move. He made them leave the Red Sea. This is just a side note, but it almost seems like they had kind of crossed the Red Sea, and they're like, all right, this is good enough. We'll settle here. We'll just hang out here. And it's like Moses was like, no, 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 no. There's work to be done. There's moving to be done. There's things we have to do. Put one foot in front of the other. We got to persevere to get to this promised land. It's just an interesting wording there that Moses made them leave as if they were just like, well, this is good enough. This isn't the promised land that God has given us, but it's good enough. We'll stay here. And he made them move. That's just a side note for us. If you're a Christian in this room, yeah, you're saved. Good job. You did nothing. Jesus did all the work. But now it's work time. It's put one foot in front of the other time. It's persevere time. That is a complete side note. So they left. It says they got up. Moses made them move. So they moved. Now, as we read the story of Exodus or the book of Exodus, one thing we need to consider is that it is a narrative story, meaning A to B to C, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Not every book in the Bible is chronologically ordered that way. Not all the books themselves are ordered in order. There's a thing called the chronological Bible, and it's all out of whack because it puts it in order. But Exodus, as itself, is in chronological order. This happened, then this happened. The Bible sometimes doesn't tell us exactly how long things take. For instance, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they ate the fruit? I don't know. It seems like it was pretty quick. And if you know human nature, it probably was. But we don't really know. We don't know exactly how old certain people were in Scripture. We don't know exactly how long Paul was in certain places. Some we do because he tells us. Some we don't. So there are things in the Bible where we don't know exactly how long something takes. Today's text is not like that. Three days. Three days. 400 years of slavery. God is awesome. Three days before they're like, yeah, he's not that awesome. Where's the water? Where is the water? We go from worshiping Jesus. We talked about singing last week because they were worshiping Jesus so fervently in the desert. of, Look how great God is. Look at the salvation. He is strong and mighty. We will worship him. He is awesome. He is awesome. He is awesome. Three days. Where's the water, God? Where's the water to go from worshiping straight to childish, immature entitlement? Most of y'all know what I do um, for a living. 
we, uh, we joke that we should write a book at Hope House because so many different things. So I have a lifetime of sermon illustrations. That should be a perk you put. If you're looking to hire somebody at Hope House, pay, insurance, you get stories to tell because there's all kinds of stuff that happens, okay? But one of the most surprising things that has happened over the years working with criminals, working with drug addicts or former drug addicts, as we hope, former alcoholics, homeless men, sometimes they fit all of those categories. One of the more surprising things is honestly how much I like some of these guys. Like in another life, we totally could have been friends. I wouldn't have hopefully engaged in some of the things that they engaged in, but I like hanging out with them. I like joking with them. I like becoming friends with them even after they've left the program or graduated the program. I did not see that coming six years ago. Six years ago, the night before we were ushering, going to usher in our first resident, I was just, I'd watched Locked Up Raw. If you know what that show is, it ain't pleasant, all right? So I'd watch that show, and I was like, I'm just going to get shanked. I'm going to get shanked. I don't know what that really means, but I know it's not good. I'm probably getting stabbed tomorrow. I don't know who's coming, but I'm getting stabbed. That's, that's all that's happening, all right? Couldn't have been farther from the truth. These guys are just guys. They're just guys that that have made different decisions, they move in, and I honestly, most of them, there are some that I just couldn't bring myself to like. I love them, because Jesus told me to, but I didn't like them all that much, all right? But some, most of them I like. Now, having said that, the other most surprising thing about this is, again, these men have spent time in jail, they spent time in prison, they spent time being homeless, they've used drugs for years, but man, do they become entitled day one. It is insane how quickly they go from putting life off for decades for some of them to if you don't get me a dentist appointment today, you, I'm, something bad is going to You're going to get shanked. That's what happens, right? It's, if you don't get me into the dentist right now, and I'm like, you haven't even said the word dentist in 12 years. And all of a sudden, if I don't get you in today, something bad is going to happen. Or they start complaining about the food. Look, I've not eaten jail food. Some of you may have. That's fine. But I hear it's not great. But they get in there and like two meals in, they're like, you use regular black pepper and not cracked black pepper? <laughs> All right, I guess I'll eat it. Or pizza again. I'm like, pizza? I think pizza every day. Like, what are you talking about? It, it's crazy how quickly they become entitled. And here's my favorite part. My favorite part of the whole thing. They look at us so many times we've heard this. And you call yourself Christians. You didn't get me in the dentist today, and you call yourself Christians. You're supposed to do everything I ask, everything I say, everything that I want you to do, the way I want you to do it, how quickly I want you to do it, when I want you to do it, and I don't want to hear any complaints because you're Christians. It's exactly what happens here in this text. As soon as God does something in a way the Israelites don't like or didn't see coming or wouldn't have done it that way themselves, they start to grumble. They start to complain. Remember, three days. We are three days removed from one of the most miraculous stories in the Bible. The Red Sea has just parted so that they could walk through on dry ground. And it's three days from you are our strength and our salvation to this water doesn't taste very good. What is this? Aquafina? Can't drink that. I'm a Dasani man, right? I don't want fop. I'm a dapper dan. Never mind. I've, here's the thing. I've talked to the Vanderpools long enough 
from about their time in India. People can live off of just about any type of water there is. If it can go into your mouth and down into your stomach. Now, we would die. But the people in India just grow used to it. They drink sewage. Literally, like, not sewage. Sewage, literally. And they live just fine. The Israelites, probably, I wasn't there, could have made do with this water. 400 years of slavery. Three days. And they basically are looking at God and they say, and you call yourself God. And you call yourself, where's the water, God? The commentaries, all of them that I read this week, took special care to note that this word for grumble in the original language is not just the filing of a complaint, putting it in the suggestion box for God to maybe possibly get us some high quality H2O here. That's not what's happening, okay? They are rebellious. They are inciting riots against Moses, basically. Now, I don't know physical riots, but they are coming to him like, Moses, where's the water? What are we supposed to drink here? Even the phrasing, what shall we drink? You can sense the sarcasm. You can sense the Israelites are, what are we supposed to drink, Moses? Huh? We're going to drink that over there? We're going to drink, there's so much water here in the desert. It's almost like they are taunting Moses. They have just seen God part the Red Sea. He had so much control over water that he took an ocean and split it like this. People walked through, and at the right time, when the bad guys, as my daughter would call them, walk in, kills them all. And now they are doubting his ability to make water drinkable. Now in their defense... Slightly, water is very important. Can't live without it. It's a building block to all of life. We need water. Living creatures need water. Plants need water. The creation needs water. We need water. That's why most of the earth is covered in water. We got to have it. This is one of the aspects. The, the availability of drinkable and clean, usable water is one of the aspects that makes earth hab habitable. Habitable? Aba available to live on. And other planets are not. Now, it's not the only thing, but one of the things that has to happen is you got to have water. So it is very important. One quote I read this week about it says, thousands have lived without love, not one without water. It is a valid concern that the Israelites have, okay? But think about how many miracles in Scripture involve water. You've got Noah. You've got the Nile turning into blood just a few chapters ago. You've got the Red Sea part, parting like two chapters ago. Numerous healings in Jesus' ministry took place at a specific bathing pool or a specific river or he took water somehow and made mud or whatever. You've got turning water into wine. He calms the sea when he's on a boat. He walks on it, kind of a big one. So many things involve water. God continually shows us that he is the God of all. Every molecule is under his control. Even the most basic we need for life. And he's saying, if I have dominion over the very source of life, then I am the source of life. Not water. So stop worrying about the bitter water. I am in control of this. This is why the entitlement is shocking. But honestly, the disbelief that God can do something is what's most shocking. Based on what they've seen over and over in the last few chapters of Exodus. We've gone over this in grave detail. 
They've seen all of this. They've been there for all of this. The disbelief is what is shocking here. And this is how quickly unbelief and forgetfulness can creep into our own hearts. God may miraculously do something yesterday, but today, where's the water, God? This is why the Bible implores us over and over, remember, 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 look back, look back, look back. We did a sermon on this just a few weeks ago. But part of their disbelief, I will also, in their defense, is rooted in belief. Because, this is what I mean by that, the Israelites were finally beginning to believe again that God was going to deliver them to the promised land. He had promised this. They had kind of doubted it because they had been in slavery for so long. And now they're saved from slavery. They're across the Red Sea. They're on their way. The problem is, is they thought it was basically a one-stop shop. We crossed the Red Sea. Next stop, Canaan. I want to remind you, we'll get to this. It took 40 years to get there. And we're on day three. So they wander a few days in the wilderness. The very first stop they make, they're met with adversity. So I understand why they might have been confused. They thought they were going straight there. First stop, bitter water. This was the beginning of a long road of sanctification for the Israelites. This is a road every Christian in this room, every Christian listening, every Christian that ever hears this sermon is on. If you are breathing, this is the road you're on. The road of sanctification. But let's be real. There's no reason. We all know each other in here. There's no reason to lie. We've asked the same question. We've wondered the very same thing. God, why, like, you've made these promises, right? I'm saved. I have a new identity. We're going to inherit the kingdom. We're going to live in paradise forever. Can't we just do that now? Can't we just move on, get on with it? Let's just let's kick this thing off. Let's do it. Now, why do we have to wait for paradise? Why do we have to wait and trudge through the pitfalls of this world and all of the things that culture will throw at us and all of the things that are happening around us? If God's saving us from hell, then can't He just save us from the hell here on earth and move on? John 16, it says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take art, I have overcome the world. Sounds great. Can we get to the overcoming part? Can you just do it? God, you see, we give the Israelites a hard time, and I'll tell you why. Every time we give them a hard time, it's because we forget how much like them we are. Every time. That's, that's what it boils down to every time, is we forget we are just like them. We wander around in the wilderness in this world believing God's promises one minute, spitting in his face the next, when he doesn't deliver on them the way we think he's supposed to deliver them. And just like the residents of Program Living, and just like the Israelites, we look at him and we say, and you call yourself God? You're not doing this the way I think you should be doing this. We doubt, we question, we wonder. Why does this have to be so hard? Why does life have to be so difficult? Yet even in the face of faithlessness, God remains faithful to the Israelites and to us. We see again, God mercifully, because He didn't have to, graciously, because He didn't have to, miraculously changed this water from bitter to sweet. I've thrown many a stick in many a water. When I was a kid, creeks everywhere, chucking them in there. Not one time did it change the taste of the water. This is a miracle that God is doing. In the midst of disrespect, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of entitlement, He still provides for and loves His people. The bitter became sweet. 
And this is an example of our God. This is what he does. He takes the bitterness of this world and he makes it sweet. There is no clearer picture of this in the history of the world than the cross. That is the bitterest pill we can swallow. An innocent man was brutally murdered. He was beaten, flogged, mocked, spit upon, hung on a cross until he could no longer breathe on his own, and then suffocated and died, and he had done nothing wrong. That is bitter. The bitterest, or the most bitter, I really still don't know which is accurate. However, what, God meant for, what man meant for evil, God meant for good, right? So the bitterest pill that we can possibly think of becomes the sweetest news that I have for you today. An innocent man was brutally murdered. He was beaten, flogged, mocked, spit upon, and hung on a cross until he could no longer breathe on his own, and then he suffocated and died, and he had done nothing wrong. Bitter made sweet. God promises to turn the bitter to sweet, even for his people, both then and now. The problem arises when he doesn't do it the way we expect. And the question you have to ask yourself is, am I going to be like David in Psalm 40 and wait patiently for the Lord, or am I going to be like the Israelites and look him square in his face and say, and you call yourself God? Because being God's people comes with a set of expectations. You see, he gives them his commandments here. He says, now go follow my command. I've turned the water. Now go. Go follow. This is a picture of the gospel. Notice he did not say, keep my commandments and then I'll save you. The saving had already been done. They'd already crossed the Red Sea. They were already out of Egyptian territory. They were already out of slavery. He had already done the saving. And now he says, go, follow my commands. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as Charles Spurgeon put it, let present privilege awaken us to present duty. And now, while life lasts, spend and be spent for our sweet Lord Jesus. It comes with a set of expectations. This is the gospel. Jesus saves us, then he commands our obedience, not the other way around. He tells us then to persevere till the end, and you will receive the crown of righteousness of glory with me. The problem is, we want it now. We want it right now. We are like the Israelites. We don't want the wilderness. We don't want the bitter. We just want the sweet. We want the ends. We don't want the means that God has laid out for us to get us there. But this is where we have to be honest with ourselves. Look at today's passage. God leads them to Elam. Okay, at the end of the passage, in verse 27. God leads them to Elam where there is plenty of water and plenty of food for anything. You notice anything about that verse? No, you don't, because there's nothing about that verse. I couldn't preach that verse if I'd have been assigned it today. If Eric had said, preach Exodus 15, 27, I'd have been like, sorry, bro. We're just going to say Jesus deuces and I'm out because there's nothing there. You know why? Because it's true of all humans that we learn more from the bitter water of Mara than we do from the palm trees of Elam. We find out far more about ourselves and about our God in the times that we in of need than in times of abundance. We got to go through Mara to get to Elam. The next verse in chapter sixteen it says they just left Elam. There's nothing there. It's abundant in all of these things, and they just go. 
So for the rest of our time today, I want to try to answer the question of why. Because God doesn't have to do it this way. God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to lead us in the wilderness. He doesn't have to do this. He can immediately take the Israelites to the promised land. He can immediately take us to heaven. He can do anything he wants immediately. But that's not how he chooses to do it. So why is it in the wilderness we learn the most? And more importantly today, why is this truly the best way? And luckily, the Bible answers that question for us. So take your Bibles, turn over a, a bunch of pages, but not very many books, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So you got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Naming my next kid Deuteronomy, by the way. All right, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 8. God answers this question. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. So we're there, right? We're at the cusp of the promised land. And you shall remember the whole way, all of it, all the pitfalls, all the water, all the everything, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So why does God lead us through the wilderness? Why does God lead the Israelites through the wilderness? Verse 2, He wants to humble you. He wants to humble us. God wants to humble us because too many times we become entitled. We begin to think that we know best and God is not going, He is a jealous God who is not sharing His glory with anyone. So if you think you know best, He's going to show you that you do not. Humility is not easy for anyone. No one in here is like, you remember that last time I realized I was nowhere near as good as I thought I was? That was awesome. No one remembers the moment of humility as great. Now the effect, yes, we'll get to that. But humility is hard. And here's the thing in our current culture, and at least in America, it's not even seen as a virtue anymore. Like, you got to look out for number one. You got to make sure you're the, you're, you look out for you first because nobody else is going to. Humility is not even looked at as a good thing anymore. So, why is it good news and why is it better that God would take time to humble us? And I would answer that question with some questions. You don't have to raise your hand because this would just be everyone raising their hand. But any of you realize that you're just a terrible God? You would just mess up all of the things. You finally realize you're simply not going to get it together on your own. No matter how good your bootstraps are or how hard you pull on them. Any of you like Paul who wrote Romans 7 roughly 15 to 20 years into his Christianity. You keep doing the things you don't want to do and you keep not doing the things you're supposed to. Any of you? Am I the only one? Any of you finally realize that a religion that tells you to straighten up your life by your own will and your own strength is utterly useless? Because you can't. 
and you won't. And half the time, you won't even want to. That's the key. If we want to do something, usually we can do it. We're Americans. We're strong. That's what the president told us. We could defeat a virus because we're Americans. I don't know how that works. But it's what we think, right? If I put my mind to it, I can do it. Half the time, you're not even putting your mind to it. You don't even want to. This is why humbling is necessary, and this is why it's a good thing. When we humble ourselves under the hand of God and place Him on the thrones of our lives, we are in a better place than if God were to give us the freedom to do any and everything that we want. Because when we do any and everything that we want, look around. And I don't mean this room. Look around America. Humility equals freedom. It takes the pressure off. Humbly admitting you are a sinner in need of grace, in need of mercy, in need of redemption, and in need of a Savior takes all the pressure off of you to be that for yourself or for anyone else. You don't have to be anyone's Savior. You don't have to be your own Savior. Jesus did that for you. It takes all the pressure off because it's too heavy of a weight to bear, and God graciously takes it off of you. It's like a spotter at the gym, except he's doing all the lifting, which I've spotted those guys. We hate them. But just imagine if God let us keep trying to be the Savior. Instead of sending us insurmountable odds, He let us just keep thinking, man, if I put my mind to it, if I put my mind to it, if I put my mind to it, He just let us keep in that cycle, in the hamster wheel of trying, in the hamster wheel of trying. But instead, what does He do? He puts a sea that you cannot cross in front of you and an army you cannot defeat behind you. And then He says, watch this. Watch this. Watch me show up because you can't do it. And just when we think we get across the sea, God did it. Let's worship Him. Let's sing a song that we're making up, but everybody knows the words. It's like a Disney movie. Everyone knows these words. It's a song of Moses somehow. Let's sing this song. And then He goes, Oh yeah? What are you going to drink? Mr. Big Head. Mr. You've got it all figured out. What are you going to drink? Deuteronomy goes on to flesh this out in verses 11 through 17, chapter 8. It says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. And the R-O-U-S's for you Princess Bride fans, they had to have been there, right? The rats of unusual size, they had to have been out there. But who brought you out of the flinty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna and your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end? Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this far, have gotten me this wealth. Imagine God not revealing your desperate need for Him. And you're just continuing to try to maintain. And I can, if I can just strong enough, humility is freedom. And this reveals two truths that we must hold in tandem today. That God loves us too much not to humble us so that we turn to Him. But God loves Himself too much not to humble us so that He is the one we turn to. Alright, back to Exodus. Verse 2 also tells us that God was testing their hearts. 
for all the teachers in the room, testing is hard. I've been working at the schools during testing week, is what I have to say to that. Testing is hard. Being tested is hard. Having to prove yourself is hard. It's frustrating. There's no way around that. And I'm not taking up for school testing because I'm not getting into that battle. But if you're not tested in life, how do you know where you stand? How else do you know if you're truly following after God? Are we following after Jesus because we get Jesus or because we get all of the stuff that we really want and Jesus just happens to be the way in which we get it? I have a simple equation. I think I have a slide. I don't know for sure. I like to use for this. Jesus, for all you math people, Jesus is greater than Jesus plus anything else. I don't care what you put in this blank. Jesus himself is better than Jesus plus this. Making your faith about Jesus plus all the blessings simply dilutes and distracts away from the real thing. If I have a gallon of gas and I need two gallons and I put water in it, do I have two gallons of liquid? Yes. Do I have two gallons of absolutely, utterly useless liquid? Yes. I've got more stuff. I've got more liquid. I've just made it nothing. I've just made it useless. This is what adding things to Jesus is. You are diluting the real thing. You're making yourself think something else is greater. And he tells us, I'm better. Worshiping Jesus for the blessings is useless, even if we get the blessings. Even if we get the stuff we really want. When we do this, it's revealing what we are truly worshiping. And it's whatever you put in this blank. That's what you're really worshiping. That's your real idol. That's your real God there. Psalm 119.57 says that the Lord is my portion. Is he or not? That's for you to answer for yourself. Is he or not? I have to answer that for myself. And I got to be honest, on some days, he ain't. Not because he's not good enough. He's always good enough. It's because I start thinking these things are better. These things in the blank are better. Is God your portion or is he simply the way in which he can provide your portion? Is he your true freedom or is he simply your way out of chains? Is he your true sustenance or is he just the way in which you get water? See, the Israelites here, at least briefly, fail this test. They make it clear they're following after God for the stuff he can give them, for the life he can give them. They're getting water. As we progress through the story, it's any number of different things. As we progress through Exodus, they fail this test over and over and over and over again because they expect God to do what they want Him to do at the time they want Him to do it, in the way in which they want Him to do it. And as soon as He doesn't, they turn on Him again and again and again. They worship other gods, literally other gods, and then they also just worship other stuff just like we do. He tests them. They fail the test. But God remains merciful. He remains gracious. He doesn't just wipe them out as he should in the desert. A pastor friend of mine, or a lot of people in this room, Thursday night at our graduation ceremony for program living, graduated six guys, and he said in his sermon to them, or to everyone, says, Christianity is not cleaning yourself up enough, obeying enough, or being good enough. It is asking yourself, is Jesus Savior enough? Was his cross sufficient enough? And was his resurrection affirmation enough? 
He's testing us to see how we answer those questions. Not because he doesn't know how we're going to answer them. Because sometimes I don't know how I'm going to answer them myself. These are the same questions we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus alone enough? Or do we need all the things that we think comes with Christianity, comes with Jesus? Being tested is hard, especially when you continually fail the test. But two truths we must hold in tandem today. God loves us too much not to test us to see what we are truly worshiping so that we know. And God loves himself too much not to test us to show his superiority over those things. He reveals it over and over again in this story and in all the stories of the Bible. He continually shows himself to be better than. Then the last reason we have in Deuteronomy, verse 5, is God is disciplining us. Discipline is hard. I thought discipline was hard when I was a kid, receiving it. Goodness gracious, giving it. <laughs> Trying to teach your kids how to act right. It's a good thing Jesus is in my life where I just give up and be like, yeah, can't do it. But here's the thing. I would do anything right here, right now, anything. If you told me some magic power that you had, if I would jump around, spin around, circle, 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 dot, dot, that my kids would never cry again, I'd do it right here, right now, in front of all of you. That they would never cry again. And yet, simultaneously me saying that, I know I'm going to be the reason they cry at some point. I'm going to make them cry. I'm going to will myself to make them cry. And I don't mean because of some wrongdoing. I've got. I'll probably do that too. I'm talking about just disciplining them in the way they don't want. That's going to cause them to cry. And in those moments, it's when I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't do that circle dot dot thing because uh, I'm glad you're crying, jerk. Right? Stop being a jerk. I won't make you cry. Boom. But we've got to do it. We've got to discipline our children. The Bible is clear. God, just like any loving father, is disciplining us because he disciplines the ones that he loves. If you are a parent in this room, it is obvious why this is a good thing. Why it is better that God allows us to be in the wilderness that drives us into the need for discipline. How else are we going to know if we're off track? How else do kids know when, oh, I shouldn't be over here, I should be over here if parents aren't helping them get back on track? And as much as culture would like to tell you, now we got to raise our kids, let them do whatever they want, find themselves, figure it out, they can do anything they want. No one, and I mean no one, not the most liberal person out there wants to grow up in a world where those kids become adults. No one. Where they're just doing whatever they want. We don't want... To be able to do what we, we do want to be able to do what we want. We don't want anybody else to be able to do what they want. That's the key. We want what we want, but y'all can't have what y'all want, okay? Unless it's what I want, and then we can team up and we can do it. But then as soon as you want something I don't want, I'm out. You're, you're done, right? That's God's discipline. It's meant to correct, to teach, to draw us back to the narrow path that leads to salvation, not simply to punish us. And two truths we must hold in tandem today. God loves us too much not to discipline us so that he, we can correct course as needed. And God loves himself too much not to discipline us because those whom he calls his children are supposed to reflect him in the world. And if he doesn't mold us and shape us to do so, we won't. And he loves his glory far too much to allow us not to reflect him better day by day by day. This is sanctification. So why the wilderness? Because that's where his promises show up. This is what allows him. The wilderness is what allows God to be a God like no other. You see, the Egyptians had all these gods, right? But where were they? 
somewhere out there. They didn't have any effect on practical day-to-day living unless you sacrificed the right thing or burned the right thing or whatever, and then maybe they would give you some blessings of water or fire or whatever the God was. This is what he reveals to the Israelites over and over again. Yahweh is a God unlike any other God. I'm not far off. I'm not distant. Psalm 23.4. It's one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture, Psalm 23. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so you're in the valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Psalm 34.8, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's near to them. He doesn't just say, figure it out. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, it says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? He is with us in the wilderness. He is at hand. He is in the muck and mire of the wilderness. He is not a God who sees us in the pain, in the valley, in the brokenheartedness, in the pandemic, in the 2021, which is not a pandemic year anymore, and it's turned out to be just as bad as the last one. Turns out the calendar doesn't fix things. God is with us in our disappointments, in our broken lives, in everything, our failures, our moral failures of our own, and the failures of the people around us that hurt us. He humbles us. He tests us. He disciplines us in order to draw near to us. The bitter is made sweet because even in the bitter, we draw closer to the Lord and the Lord draws closer to us. James 4, 8, draw near to me. I will draw near to you. This is how the anxieties we feel, the hopes that get dashed, the jobs we don't get, the opportunities we miss, the relationships that get broken, the love lost, the failures, the wrongs, the sins, all of these things becomes sweet. The bitter becomes sweet because anything, and I mean anything, that reveals the gods we have made for ourselves are not truly God, and anything that then drives us back to the one true God is as sweet as anything you've ever tasted. These things show us that it is better to be in the valley with God than on the mountaintop without Him. But you cannot learn that if you're only in Elam. You learn that at the bitter waters of Marah. See, God does love us. If we are His children, if you are a saved believer in this room or on Facebook, if we believe the bittersweet message of the cross, if we believe that Jesus is truly Savior enough, then God loves us unconditionally and eternally. And nothing's going to change that. You can't change it. No one can change it for you. But that love pales into comparison in how much he loves himself. And sometimes that's a bitter pill to swallow. Because it would be a bitter pill if any of y'all did that. If you love yourself more than you love anyone else on earth, somehow, some way, that's going to cause you to hurt someone. It's going to be a problem at some point. Why is it a good thing then? Why is it a better thing? Why is it sweet news that God loves himself more than he loves us? Because there's one common goal in the humbling and the testing and the disciplining. To show and reveal His glory. To show and reveal that He is enough. To show and reveal that He is God. And this is good news. God being for God is some of the best news I can offer you today because that means He will never fail. He will never falter. 
He will never turn, never turn his back on you when you have failed and when you have sinned because he's doing it for him, not for you and your earnings. So the promise of the promised land to the Israelites, even though they would fail the test again and again and again and again, where'd they end up? The promised land, because God promised and they got there. Now, not all of them, okay? But as a nation, they made it. We see in Philippians 1.6, God promises, I will finish the work I have started in you. Even though you're going to fail the test over and over and over and over and over and over. But I promised, and I promised me, and I deserve to keep my promises to myself. So God being for God means he will keep that promise as well. That doesn't mean now, though. You see, it won't be long. I think, yeah, it's two chapters away. We're in chapter 15. We get through 16. Chapter 17, guess what the Israelites are again? Thirsty. Because they're in the desert. But God gave them water. Mm -hmm. Earthly water. Satisfied for a time. See, the wilderness has a tendency to make us thirsty for the things of this world, the things we think will satisfy, these things, that things, whatever. But in the Gospel of John, we see a Samaritan woman deeply lost in the wilderness. She's been married four times. She's living with some dude that ain't her husband. Seeking, searching for satisfaction in the things of this world. Finding out they don't satisfy. We see her drawing water because she was thirsty. It's valid. She lived in the desert. But then we see Jesus show up and he tells this woman, there's a better source. There's better water. There's a better will, and it never runs out. And you don't have to keep dipping your bucket in to fill your own bucket. It says, I am the living water. I will satisfy you. Not the things of this world, not the water of this world, not the food of this world, not the power, prestige. Nothing will satisfy. It will become your portion, and you will never thirst again. This passage in Exodus, along with every story in the Bible, pushes the needle forward to that day, to that Jesus, to the coming of the promised one, to the living water so we never have to thirst again. So while it may be, it should be anyway, a bitter pill to swallow to know that your sin and my sin, your unfaithfulness, my unfaithfulness, disappointments, our, our disregarding of God's commands, our disobedience is all of those sent Jesus to the cross. It should be a bitter pill to swallow to realize that's on you. That's on me. That's on us. It's sweet because he went. Because he did die in our place. So may today be the day that you taste the sweetness of that truth. That while, yes, it was your sin, Jesus became your ultimate healer that day on the cross. But what about someone who doesn't get healed? Because it says here, I'm the Lord your God, your healer. I prayed for so-and-so to get healed and they died. If they are in Christ, they're as healed as they've ever been and more so. May we drink this today. If you are drinking this for the first time today, may it be sweet to your lips that 
from this day forward, if you truly believe that Jesus is enough, if the cross is enough, if His death is enough, if His resurrection is enough, then He will sustain you. He will get you through the wilderness. He will get you to the promised land. Why? Because He promised that He would. And He keeps His promises to Himself. If you are already saved, may this still be as sweet today as it ever was, even the first time you believe in it. Because every one of you sinned this week, except Miss Cynthia. She's perfect. Seriously, like what do you, what do, you do wrong? Anyway, um, Mike makes up for it. But we've all sinned this week. We've all failed this week. May it be sweet today. You don't have to make up for it. You don't have to earn it back. You don't have to go, Jesus, please come back to me. All you say is, Jesus, you're enough. You've saved me. I'm sorry for the sin. I repent. I turn away from that. Welcome, welcome me back. And he says, I never left. I never left. I was with you always. If that is truly enough for you today, he'll humble you again. He'll test you again. You'll fail. He'll test you again. You'll pass sometimes. He'll discipline you. But you never have to thirst again. Because God promises to save you and sustain you in the midst of the wilderness. And God is for God. And that is the sweetest news we've got. Let's pray.
Amen.